0: We'll read from verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come humbly before the throne at this time, Lord, to study your word, Lord. We ask that our ears be opened, Lord, that we be awake. And attentive to the truth of your word, Lord, that the precepts that we are taught in scripture, Lord, would dwell in our hearts, that we would meditate on these things as we go about our days, Lord, and that you would be glorified in this above all things, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So you'll remember we've been working our way through the book of John. And there's a number of contextual elements that I want to cover here before we... Uh, return to this chapter, this uh, reading that we just covered, the gospel of John written by John to sort of fill in all the blanks that uh, were not covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The purpose of the gospel of John is to persuade the reader of the divinity of Christ. He was writing in opposition to a number of the heretical elements of the first century, the Ebionites, the Gnostics, who said that Christ was just a man or or that Christ was a spirit of some sort that came down, that he was not either fully God or or fully man. So he's competing or he's contesting these heresies that were popular in the first century. And we're going to continue returning to the first chapter because it's incredibly deep and there's no way you could really even begin to plumb its depths. But one thing I wanted to draw our attention to with regard to this Logos, the word of God, we've already covered a number of times how it's being written in Greek. He's approaching, John is talking about the Logos, the word of God, and he's using it in opposition to the way that it was used predominantly by the Greeks at the time. For 500 years, the Greeks had understood the Logos to be an abstract principle of reason, a sort of force of nature that animates creation. They would have looked at it, um, it's often put as like an ordering structure. So if you look at anything in nature, there's order, there's structure, and because of that order and structure, you can make ordered, structured comments about it. So when you think about the word logos, it's the root of logi, right? So psychology, Theology, you hear the suffix there, you know that it's related to the logos, the ordered structure, the study of a subject. Now, the Jews, John is obviously a Jew, and so he's bringing a whole host of context around what the Word of God would have meant to the Jews. Now, That would have meant something a little bit different. When we say the word of God, I say I'm reading from the word of God here. I'm talking about the holy scriptures. But when they say the word of God, they mean more like the creative act, the sort of narrative, creative act that God uses to impose his vision into reality or to transform his vision into reality. And so what's happening here, you'll remember immediately after chapter one, we've got chapter two, we've already gone through the wedding at Cana, where Christ turns the water into wine. What John is doing here is similar To what Christ did at the wedding, where he's taking the water of the Greek logos, which is an abstract principle detached from material reality, detached from our everyday experience of things. And he's miraculously turning this concept that all the Greeks would have understood into something true and joyful in that the word was made flesh and so this is a theme that runs throughout the book of John. He's, he's bringing together two completely different cultures in the Hellenic Greeks and the, you would, uh, the Hebraic Jews, and he's conforming both of them into... Be Christianity. He's making Christianity out of these two cultures that are both wrong in their own ways. The Jews, the Greeks were pagans. They didn't have the truth of the Abrahamic God, and the Jews were legalist religious, like religious people who had lost the truth of justification by faith alone. So what John is doing here is he's, he's um, reconciling these two very different cultures of Jerusalem and Athens, and he's making Christianity out of it. And so it, just, it's, it bears like returning to chapter one over and over as we continue to move through this book. And we then have the wedding at Cana and his first miracle of his public ministry and then we have the cleansing of the temple, which we talked about the last time we were all together. The cleansing of the temple. You have these money changers. You have these people who are making money in the court of the Gentiles where, uh, where the, the Gentiles who had converted to Judaism were allowed to come and worship. They were also encouraged to buy these animals for sacrifice. And, got, and Christ comes and he says, you've made my house, my father's house, a house of merchandise. And he drives them out with a scourge that he had made And finally, we get to the text that we're discussing today. And then answered the Jews and said unto him, what sign showest thou unto unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? So we've seen you just drive all these people out of the, the court of the Gentiles with a whip. And now we are demanding an explanation. We are demanding by what authority you do these things. What sign can you show us? What specific indication of the authority uh, uh, that you have can you show us to to demonstrate that you have the right to do these things? And it's interesting that it's the Jews that do this because they're in the court of the Gentiles. And so it's not the people he had just driven out who are demanding an explanation, the Gentile money changers. It's not the Gentiles that are there to worship. It's the Jews. It's the, the sort of gatekeepers of the religious world of the Hebrews saying, what sign do you have to justify these things? And he, Jesus answers and says unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 12 because this will, I think, help us to understand What this means. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, the Pharisees are asking the same question. Master, we would see a sign from thee, something to demonstrate your authority, a miracle, something to prove to us. They're tempting the Lord. And he answers and says unto them, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, but there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart. Of the earth, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. So this is the entire explanation of the sign. Uh, the, The sign is that he's going to be crucified and buried and then risen again in three days. And the purpose of the sign is to prove to who it's not to us. I mean, it does prove to us, it is a miracle and it's a wonder for us to behold, but it's to prove to this wicked and adulterous generation that they are worse than Nineveh. Their unbelief is worse than Nineveh because a greater than Jonas had come and they didn't believe him. And the Jews say, back to John chapter two, the Jews say 40 and six years it took to build this temple, the temple at Jerusalem. But you say you can rear it up in three days. You can raise it up in three days. But he spake of the temple of his body. We know from the resurrection, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, That Christ came with power as the Son of God. That's from Romans 1. We know from Matthew 26, he's on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, and they are trying to call witnesses, and finally they get two false witnesses. And one says, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, "Answerest thou nothing. What is this, which these witnesses witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace and the high priest answered and said, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the son of God. So, I mean, just imagine the insult here. He is demanding in the name of God, who is standing in front of him, that God, who is standing in front of him, respond, right? Like the tempting of the Lord from the Jews of the time is extraordinary. It's, it's, it's hard to even imagine having this sort of pride in the face of God, but it's a pride that we all have at certain times of our lives. Jesus says unto him, thou hast said, tell us whether thou be the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, thou hast said. You said it. Nevertheless, I say unto you hereafter shall ye see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. This is a a beautiful harmonization. He says after he cleanses the temple, the sign that you will get is that I will tear down that you will tear down this temple and I will raise it back up in three days. They then accuse him with that statement in his trial. Because they don't understand that he's talking about his body. And what he does here in verse 64 of Matthew is he prophesies yet again that he will come again in a cloud of judgment, which he does. If you read Matthew chapter 24, you know that he comes in judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD. The siege of Jerusalem, the most violent and destructive act of war, maybe in the history of of warfare was Christ coming in judgment on that city. And so this just it's just a very kind of beautiful harmonization where you're going to destroy this temple, I'm going to raise it up. I'm talking about my body. When you accuse me with this, I'm going to prophesy the the destruction of the temple that you thought I was talking about that happens in the lifetimes of some of the people in this generation, which is discussed at length in Matthew 24. Our Lord doesn't miss. He doesn't prophesy things that don't happen. He doesn't make statements that aren't true. It's 100% true all of the time. And you can tell that, the. I mean, we're about to talk about a little bit of the Old Testament where we get the prophecies that this is going to happen. Hosea 1 and 2, right? Hosea 1 and 2, it says... I'm sorry, uh, Hosea 6, verses 1 and 2. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and will heal us. He has smitten and he will bind us. After two days, he will revive us. And the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. In Acts 2, it says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves know. So these signs are how we know that God is who he says he is, that the word of God is what he claims it to be. 46 years was this temple built in three days. You think you can raise it up, but he spake of the temple of his body. We're coming around to Easter. We're going to be celebrating this. We're going to be discussing it at length. We should be meditating on this, that for. Four years or three years prior to the crucifixion, he predicted his own death and resurrection. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. They believed the scriptures, the writings, and the word which Jesus had said. So they believed the scriptures, all the prophecies in the Old Testament, the scriptures, the writings. They believe those. And they believed the words the Lord had said. And this is what happens when you behold the miracles that God performs. It encourages, it leads to further belief. And it happens with us too. I mean, when we see this, we believe the word of God. And when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name. When they saw the miracles, which he did. I was trying to decide if we should cover verses 24 and 25. I think we're going to hold off until next time. There's so much here. John is so incredibly rich. These signs that the Lord tells of himself uh, and the fulfillment of the prophecies that he makes of himself are one of the greatest assurances that we have in the veracity of the words that he speaks and the divinity of his person. As we close out the chapter, we will learn a little bit more about his character in relation to us. So let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we're so grateful for your son, Lord, for him being in our midst, Lord, when we gather together, Lord, we just ask that uh, we would be able to think on these things that we've learned here today, Lord, that our our Lord uh, became flesh and that he rebuked the religious leaders of his time and that he prophesied his own crucifixion and his own resurrection, Lord, and that these are assurances to us thousands of years later, in the veracity of his word, Lord. Father, we just ask that these things dwell richly within us, that they be moving our hearts, Lord, so that we'd be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. We're so grateful for him and all the things that you all the blessings that you provide that we couldn't begin to count them all, Lord. We ask that you'd be glorified in all this, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen. I want to speak to you this morning
1: about miracles, about miracles. And we all have witnessed miracles in our life and would like to look at what the scriptures have to say about miracles. This is not an exhaustive message, but it will uh, maybe just shed a little bit of light on miracles. If you look up the definition of miracle, it's an extraordinary event that's taken as a sign of a supernatural power. It also is an unusual or unexpected observable event brought about by divine intervention. If you look up the Latin word miracle, it means object of wonder, object of wonder. And one of the oldest definitions is uh, it's, uh, smirius, and that means to smile. And that's exactly what we do when we witness or we experience a miracle in our life. That's the end result of it. We are in awe. There's about three different categories that miracles fall into Number one is that of curing diseases or illness. If you look at the miracles, Brother Danny brought out some. Uh, Many of the miracles that Jesus Christ himself performed were of curing ailments and illnesses. Another category that miracles fall into are relieving or delivering folks from demonic spirits. Um, Opposing themselves, being bondage to sin, being bondage to Satan and God delivering from that. And the third category that most miracles fall into is or that many fall into is that of resurrection. We can think of Lazarus and how that Christ raised him from the dead. And then we can witness even the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so those are three categories that most miracles fall into that are in the scriptures and even that we would experience in our life. Some of the purpose, some of the purposes of miracles, the end result of miracles is to strengthen our faith. It encourages us, as Brother Danny brought forth in his message. It, it helps us in our Belief it helps us in our faith. God is the one that gives us faith, but when we witness a miracle, it encourages or strengthens our faith. We can go back and look at different miracles, and those, in and of themselves, uh, encourage us along the way. So one of the one of the end results or the purposes of miracles is to strengthen our faith, is to encourage us in our belief and in our faith. Uh, A second benefit of miracles is that miracles accomplish something good, something good when God works a miracle. Another one that I believe that miracles do for us is that it reminds us that God is sovereign. God is the one that's in charge. God doesn't always heal every sickness the way we think or might desire that he do. But God does heal some and God does deliver some. And so when God works miracles, it reminds us that God is sovereign, that God has all power and it's up to God, not up to us. And another thing that happens when we see miracles or we witness miracles is that it reminds us and it declares the glory of God. When it's something outside of ourself, when it's something above us, when it's something extraordinary, it points and gives all the glory to God. So the four areas, not only these four, but it strengthens our faith. It accomplishes good. It reminds us that God is sovereign and then it declares his glory. So let's look at some miracles. Before we look at some miracles, there's an account where John was, uh, had two disciples in Luke chapter 7. And it says, John calling his two disciples, he sent them to Jesus saying, art thou he that should come? Or look we for another. And when the men were come unto him. They said. They said. John the Baptist has sent us to thee. Saying art thou he that should come. Or do we look for another. And in that same hour. He cured many of their infirmities. Their plagues. Their the evil spirits. And many that were blind. He gave them sight. And then Christ gives the message to these disciples to go and tell John this. It says Jesus answering said unto them, go your way and tell John what things you have seen, what things you have heard and how that the blind see the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear the dead are raised and that the poor have the gospel preached unto them. You go tell John About how that I have uh, worked these miracles and in telling John and reminding John that it's going to encourage John. And so when we witness miracles in our life, when we hear about miracles or we experience them in our life, it encourages our faith in the Lord doesn't give us faith, but it encourages the faith that we have. So let's look at just a few of the miracles. There's, there's the the New Testament is loaded with miracles. Just going to touch on a few right here, and I pray the Lord will bless us for a few minutes. In John chapter two, it talks about the first miracle that was performed. It says that, uh, that Jesus and his mother went to a marriage feast in Cana, and it says that. Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage, and, and they wanted wine. And Brother Danny had mentioned this uh, this miracle. It says, And they wanted wine, and the mother Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And then his mother saith unto the servants, what, oh, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of purifying of the Jews, containing about two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus said unto them, fill the water pots with water. So Jesus Christ is just about to do something that's extraordinary. Jesus Christ is about to do something uh, that the folks that are there do not have the ability to do, something that is above and beyond what they can do, something that even can't be explained out. And oftentimes that's how God works miracles. He does things in such a way that you can't rationally explain it other than you can say, but God. But God is the one that intervened and and God is the one that delivered. God is the one that healed. God is the one that delivered from the uh, demonic spirits. And even in the resurrection, it was but God. And so. It says that they filled the water pots with water. Now, keep in mind, uh, the servants that witnessed this, they knew what was going into the water pots. And it says they filled them to the brim. I think that's interesting that he says they filled them to the brim. If they just filled them halfway, then you could have concluded that something else could have been added to it. But when it was filled to the brim with water, There was no room for anything else. And sometimes folks like to explain away miracles. He had them fill it to the brim. So there was no other alternative than God worked a miracle. And he changed every drop of that water to wine. If it had been filled just 90% of the way, somebody could have said, well, somebody added something to it. But he said, you fill it to the brim. So God does it in such a way that he gets all the glory always said they filled it to the brim. And it says, he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. Do you know, there's sometimes things that God tells us to do. It doesn't affect the miracle itself, but it does affect receiving the benefit of the miracle. If they hadn't drawn the water out, they would have missed that miracle that was there. God still turned the water into wine. But in order to witness what God had done, he told them what to do. And sometimes God tells us what to do and we ought to do what he tells us to do so that we receive the benefit of the blessing that God has done. So if God tells us we ought to do everything we can and everything that we know to do, that God gives us light to do, but we ought to give him all the praise and glory. Amen. Now, here's what he said. He said, you go out. Jesus say, saith unto them, fill the water pots with water. And they went and filled them to the brim. And then he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he not knew. He He knew not it was, but the servants which drew the water knew and the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. So not only are we about to witness the, uh, the miracle that had just happened, but we're going to see how that when God does something, he does it just right and he does it. And it's always good and it's always just right and it's always better than what you had before. And so look at what it what he says right here. And so the governor, the governor of the feast, the one that's in charge of the feast, he did not realize that in these bottles, in these containers, that it was actually wine. He didn't realize that it had been water. And so he calls the, it says the the bridegroom, and he says, he saith unto him, he said, generally speaking, I'm paraphrasing this, but he says, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse but thou hast kept the good wine until now. He's saying, the governor of the feast says, the wine that we're drinking is better. I, my, I told uh, Brother David this last week, my new Bible is slick and I apologize. It slides off and my My apologies here. I need to bring my old one back. Now, I lost my train of thought. Um, So the governor of the feast recognized that the wine that had been turned from water into wine, and he didn't know what had happened right here, that it was better than the first wine that had been poured. And he said, that doesn't happen. You normally you present the best wine first and then the leftovers at the end. But he said, this wine is the best wine. Now it says the servants that were there, they witnessed and they knew what had happened. They knew that it had been water that had been turned into wine. God did a miracle. And he did it in such a way That it was to bring glory to him. And then those that witnessed it, it encouraged their faith and their belief in the Lord. And it says this was the beginning of the miracles that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And it says, and it manifested, verse 11, it manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. That's the first of the miracles that Christ performed. In chapter, chapter 4, the, the second miracle takes place in chapter 4. Verse uh, 46, we'll begin reading. It says, Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all their things that he did in Jerusalem. For they also went unto the feast. And it says, Then Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he had made water, made wine, from, made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that he was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him. And he besought him that he would come down and he would heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So now we saw where Christ turned the water into wine. Now we're going to see where this father had a, a son that was ill and his son was sick unto death, it says. And so the father goes to Christ and he'll ask him to intervene on behalf of his son and deliver his son. I expect every parent every grandparent has had times that you were at this place. That you had a child or a grandchild that was very, very ill, maybe not sick unto death, but that you went before the Lord and you took your case to the Lord and you asked the Lord to intervene. Some folks say, well, well, why is it that you pray for folks when you go to the hospital? God already knows if Uh, If he's going to heal them, if he's going to deliver them, why do you pray? We're taught to pray. And we have examples that sometimes God chooses to deliver. It says that Hezekiah, that he was sick unto death and that God heard their prayer. And it says that God added 15 years to Hezekiah's life. So God is in the business of doing miracles. That's not just something that happened in the Old Testament times or in the times of Jesus. God is still in the business of doing miracles. And we have some uh, personal examples of miracles that we'll mention here in just a minute. So this father comes to Christ and Jesus said unto the father Jesus said unto him except ye see signs and wonders ye will not believe and the nobleman saith unto him sir come down here ere my child die he 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 just he just cut through the chase right here and he said he said you're my only hope my son is about to die would you have mercy upon my son would you heal my son There's a lot of things I don't understand. Maybe sometimes my belief is, is, is like the father that had the son with the demonic spirit. And he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He says, I recognize that I have a hope in Christ. I recognize that I've witnessed miracles in times past. But Lord, sometimes I believe, but I need some help with my unbelief. Sometimes my faith gets cold. My belief is wavering. Sometimes I begin to doubt the situation. And in those times, Lord, would you strengthen my faith? Would you encourage my belief? Would you help me, Lord, to believe more strongly? The father said to him, all I know is that my only hope is in you. And look at what happened. Jesus said unto him, go thy way, thy son liveth. Jesus worked a miracle in the life of this child. And Jesus tells the father, you go back home. You go your way. Your son's going to live. Look what happened. And the man The son was not there in the presence of Jesus. The father was there and Jesus told him to go back home, to go back. When he says, go your way, he meant go back home, go back to your son. He says, your son's going to live. Then look what happened. It says that when he left, that the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, thy son liveth. So as, as he is heading back to see his son, then all of a sudden the servants come out and they meet him and they greet him along the way. And they tell him, they give him the good news. Your son is, is, is living. Your son is doing better. Your son is, is, is well. And so look what happens. This is neat. He says, and as he was going down, the servants met him and they told him, thy son liveth. Then he asked the father of the son, ask of the servants that met him. I think this is so neat. Says, then he inquired of them the hour when he began to amend, when the son began to to get better, when the son was delivered. The father asked the servants, he said, when did this happen? What time was it that you noticed the change, that you noticed that he was better? And they said unto him it was yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. And then the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said unto him thy son liveth and himself believed and his whole house. So it not only had a an impact, an encouraging effect upon the father, but it says his entire house believed. It had an impact upon all those that were around. It says this is the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea. I want to just highlight a few more that, that uh, you can go home and read. These are really, really good Most of them in John, not all, but most of them are in John. John chapter five, it talks about the man, the paraplegic man that uh, when the the pool of Bethesda was uh, the waters were stirred, that that he didn't have anybody to deliver him and put him in the water that would the water's. Uh, When folks would go into the water, uh, they were oftentimes healed of their illness, but he didn't have the ability to even get himself to the water. And when Christ came and worked a miracle in his life, Christ didn't put him in the water. Christ delivered him before he got to the water. Christ didn't even need the water to deliver the man. The man didn't need to deliver himself. Christ is the one that delivered him. It says then the Jews begin to inquire and they they inquired about Christ and and his healing on the Sabbath. And and they said they they asked him all these questions. And he said, all I know is that he told me to take up my bed and walk. And I did. And and his parents said, well, they they asked his parents and they said, well, all we know is that he's been this way from birth. And uh, yet God has delivered him. So you can look in John chapter 5, John chapter 6. It talks about Christ uh multiplying the food and feeding the 5000 just with a few loaves and a few fishes that Christ uh magnified that and I've told you about the time that we had uh it was Thanksgiving one year and we had family day and we had all the people that came to Mount Carmel and uh, we ended up, uh, I think it was uh, Sister Polk or Brother Polk that told us that there were over 250 people that were fed that day. They counted the plates, and that many were fed. And they said that as the, and there were some of the sisters that are here now that were here when this happened, that as, we'd run out, as we run as they would finish one turkey, they'd turn around, there was another one. There was another bowl of potatoes. There was another bowl of beans. And there was just one right after another to the point that Over 250 people were fed here that one day. It was like God was multiplying the loaves and the fishes. Another miracle is the raising of Lazarus, the healing of the blind man. The man that was... um, had the demonic spirit that had the the, the, the demonic spirit in uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 24, how that God delivered him. And not only did he deliver him, but he strengthened the father's faith. The father said, Lord, I believe, but I need you to help my unbelief. He delivered him you know, and strengthened his faith as well. When I was uh, about nine years old... Uh, I remember this just like it was yesterday. I had an aunt that had um, cancer, had a tumor in her back, and I remember it's a real. It was a real. There are certain pivotal points in my life that I remember, but I remember it was a real important event for my family. Now I remember that I was staying at my grandparents' house, and uh, we were sitting in the kitchen at the kitchen table, and I remember the clock that was on the wall and. And almost the exact time that this occurred, and my grandmother was sitting there by the telephone, my grandfather by the telephone, and my aunt was about to go in to have surgery. And this was in Lubbock, Texas, and she was about 42, 44 years old. She had a very advanced, uh, aggressive tumor. And the doctors were preparing to take her into surgery and did take her in to surgery. And my family, my mother and her sisters there were seven children they all gathered at the hospital and they were praying for my aunt in the waiting room while they were taking her in to have surgery and when they got in there the doctors came out and they told them the tumor's gone and we don't have any way to explain that well my family knew and i remember the phone call that came to my grandparents' house as they were waiting for this surgery to take place and to see how my aunt would do during the surgery. And I remember my grandmother answering the phone and listening to the report that they gave, and they said, the tumor is gone. And I remember when my grandmother hung up the phone and my grandmother and my grandfather explained to me, they said, that... Was a miracle. I'd never heard the term miracle. That was my first experience of a miracle. I remember Brother Polk one day. Love Brother Polk. What a blessing Brother Polk was an inspiration, an encouragement. Brother Polk was prepared to have surgery over at the hospital at Haverty Grace, Union, Hos- Union Memorial Hospital at Haverty Grace. And this was on a Wednesday. And uh, that night, Wednesday evening, Brother Polk was at church. And we thought that maybe they'd postponed or uh, some thought that he'd, they'd postponed or canceled his surgery or moved it out. Brother Polk said that he was on the table ready to go in for his surgery. And he said the doctors, before he went in, did one more scan to make sure that they were at the right spot to remove this problem that he had, this tumor, this growth that he had. And he said they even had the hairnet on him to push him back to do the surgery. And he said the doctor came out and said there's not going to be any surgery. Said that growth that you had, that tumor that you had, it's not there. And Brother Pope says, I know what happened. God delivered me. That was a miracle. Can't remember how long it's been. But one evening, I remember getting a telephone call from your dad. And he said, Grace and Jared have been in a terrible, terrible accident. Next day or so, I drove down to North Carolina, South Carolina, whatever the hospital was where Grace and Jared were. And I saw Grace and was encouraged at how Grace was doing. And she, although she was beaten up pretty bad in the accident, a head-on collision, you just don't normally recover from those. Then when I left Grace's room down below and went up to Jared's up on whatever floor it was, I think they said he was in room eight in ICU. And I remember walking over there and the whole wall being full of glass. And I saw room eight. And when I saw the person in the bed in room eight, I said to myself, well, they've given me the wrong number. That's not Jared. And I didn't, I wasn't sure that it was Jared, even when I got up within 18 inches of him. And he was so close to the Lord taking him home. And yet God heard the prayers of his saints. And I remember asking Brother Mark after Grayson, Jared were discharged from the hospital. I said, do you think it was a miracle? He says, it wasn't one miracle. It was two miracles. We witness miracles. And doesn't that strengthen your faith? Doesn't it strengthen your belief? When you witness miracles like that, it encourages us. But I'm going to tell you, as wonderful as your miracle was, and it was, it was outstanding. And it encu- every time we see you all, you encourage us that God had his hand on you and delivered you. I told Grace and Jared, I said, God's got something real special for you. He really does. But did you know you're about to experience and be reminded of the greatest miracle of all? About April every year, we recognize... The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The greatest miracle of all. That Jesus Christ. That when they went to the tomb. To said come see the place where the Lord lay. The tomb was empty. And it was empty because a great miracle had been performed. It was prophesied as has been brought out. That it was going to happen. If they'd gone there and found the body of Christ then. Then. It wouldn't have been a miracle, but through a miraculous working of almighty God, when they went to the tomb, the tomb was empty and Jesus Christ had arisen. And that's the greatest miracle of all that should encourage us that because of what Christ did, we ourselves will live and that Christ being the first fruits of us that when we are placed in the grave, that that's not the final resting place for us. But we're going to be raised as well as Christ was. The greatest miracle of all was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Men can't explain it. Men can't justify it. Men can't reason it away. It's something that's extraordinary. Outside of our ability. It's by the power of almighty God. God still works miracles today. God bless you.